Go to Acts chapter 1. And I want to talk to you about what the resurrection started. And when you open your Bible to the book of Acts, I want you to understand, you know the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the very next book on purpose is the book of action. The book of going. The book of motion. All right, Christianity in motion, I called it. Now, the Gospels record uh, the life and the words of Jesus Christ. But they're followed by the effect of those words in his life. So it's one thing for us to hear. It's another thing to do. We learned that all last year. And Acts is the doing of the gospel. Acts chronicles the history of Christianity immediately following the resurrection. Describes how Christians, as the body of believers, were able to grow and spread out from Jerusalem to the uh, uh, into the rest of the empire. Let me see if I got this right. Yeah, okay, so um, I'm a little behind on, on my graphics here. But um, uh, the gospel spread out starting in a little place called Jerusalem, and then it started to spread out into Judea and Samaria, and within 30 years it had covered nearly 1,000 miles in all directions, and it was just exploding. Virtually every chapter of the book of Acts, you find men like Peter and Paul powerfully presenting the gospel to just anyone that would listen. And souls were, they were not, they were not uh, made happy. They were convicted of their sin. See, in, in the Roman Empire in that day, just like it is today, people are living without God, without hope. Oh, they're religious and they've got all kinds of, of ways of coping, but they had no hope and they had no way for sin to be tell, uh, taken care of. And so this message they preached turned the world upside down. And boy, it angered some other people. I mean, they would run them out of town. You know what the Christians would do? They'd go to the next town. And it just kept going. It went so far as uh, there was a man, the Apostle Paul, and he ends up in prison writing. While he's in prison, he's writing four or five letters of the New Testament. And he ends up before the most powerful man in the world of the day. His name was Nero. And he gives the gospel all a long way. Think about one guy, one Jewish guy from Jerusalem ending up in Rome and he's standing for Nero and preaching the gospel. That is what Acts is all about. But there's something that's very important to understand about the book of Acts. It's not finished. You don't see it when you get to chapter 28 and you, you finish the book. It doesn't say the end. Thank God. The book of Acts doesn't say the end. It just sort of hangs there. Now, when I first got saved and I read my Bible through, I remember reading Acts and I saw, wait a minute, wait a minute. What happens next? Do you ever read a book like that? And, and it's kind of like, uh, I remember years ago, I was about 17 years old, and I watched Star Wars, and I watched, I think it was the second one, where uh, Lando Calrissian and, and uh, Han Solo, Han Solo's been put in that casket of carbonite or whatever, you know, and it ends. Do you remember that? Well, I remember screaming, what? Don't stop now. Well, let me tell you, as you read the book of Acts and you come to chapter 8, it ought to just stir you up and you say, wait a minute, it can't stop. Because we know in our heart of hearts it needs to keep going. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And it is everything, not everything, but most everything that is going on in Acts is supposed to continue to be done today. But I've got news for you. 
our lives don't match what's happening in the book of Acts. Can you admit that? That's, I remember teaching uh, teenagers. I was, uh, the, I taught the teen class um, in New Jersey. And I remember one of the kids, we actually were studying the book of Acts in that day. And I remember one of the kids saying, uh, Brother Craig, what we're seeing here doesn't match how we're doing it today. And I went, conviction, wow. Isn't that a shame? And it is, uh, I find that um, there's some problems. One is, some people think Christianity, Jesus really didn't exist. They, they, um, uh, they actually say that you Christians are so, you know, that Christianity back then, Bible-leading Christian is so primitive and you need to evolve. Other people struggle with fears over how others are going to react if you give them a gospel track or you tell them they need to get saved. Some Christians don't want to be bothered. I mean, one of the, one of the things that's a curse today is everybody's so scheduled on time except when they're watching a movie and uh, when they're with their friends. But when they're in church, it's like, Pastor, it's, it's 5 till 12. You better wrap it up, you know. Many Christians think of Christianity only as a part-time routine instead of an entirely new and consuming way of life. So I think you'd agree modern Christianity has very little in common with what we find in the book of Acts. And that's not progress, it's defeat. Now, the last chapter of Acts doesn't describe the completion of the work of gospel. It actually leaves everyone hanging, waking, waiting for a sequel. And that's where this book of Acts is our pattern. It's our pattern of how we learn to live, how we learn to pray, how we learn to stand up for Christ and how we learn to give and how to go beyond our own limitations. It's our pattern. Um, you know, you, 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 you have your children, you give them a job to do, you give them a task and give them about 15 minutes and they've forgotten what they're supposed to do and they stray from the task. Well, that's what we've done. We've gotten away from where we should be. So this year, we're going to go verse by verse through much of action. We'll be able to do it all. And we're going to let it encourage us and equip us to continue the journey that began at the resurrection. When you, when you uh, uh, open up your Bible, when I get there, and you go to like Acts chapter 1, I want you to see there in verse 1, look what it says. Acts 1.1. 1, 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that be Jesus began both to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things which pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now we're going to stop there. It doesn't stop, but that's all that we'll be able to cover today. And the first phrase in verse 1 says, the former treaties. Now, this is not like a treaty between two, two countries that are at war, but a treaty is a written essay. It's a thesis, a documentary. It's a book that describes, you know, Paul, uh, sorry, um, um, Luke says, you know the book I wrote before about all that Jesus said and did? He's referring to the gospel of Luke. We just read there, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus. Now go back to Luke chapter 1. We'll come back to Acts in just a moment. But Luke chapter 1, 
in verse 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are more surely believed among us Christians, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the, from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, uh, having had perfect understanding of the things from the very first, to write unto thee, in order, most excellent who? Theophilus. There's that name again. That thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now, Luke was not an apostle. But he says something was passed on to him. And he wanted to make sure it was passed on to somebody else. So he wrote it all down. So the gospel of Luke records, as he says there, go back to Acts chapter 1. He says, of all that Jesus began to teach and do. Acts chapter 1, we began to, uh, began to do and to teach. It is the most complete record of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of all of those Gospels, the one that's the most complete from his conception all the way through to his ascension, having all the details, is the Gospel of Luke. It is the most complete record and yet it only scratched the surface. I'll read for you just without having to go there. John 21, the end, one of the end things that John says in chapter 21, he says, there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So what is John saying? He's saying, if somebody had written down everything Jesus said, everything he taught, every, everything he did, no library could contain the books. The world couldn't contain all the books. So how do you summarize it? Well, that's what the gospel of Luke was. So he wrote a second treaty or part two, which is really interesting. This is the, this is the summary of what happened after the, uh, after the resurrection. It covers only about 30 to 35 years. It's like when you write, when you read a history book, if you notice, it covers thousands of years and most of the stuff you'll never see or know what to do with. But this book only covers 30, maybe 35 years maximum. And it is, it is part of one of the, the a great series of acts of the gospel. I'll show you what I mean in just a moment. So who was Luke? Luke was a disciple of Jesus, born again. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. He may have even been one of the 70 disciples. They had the 12 and then the 70 that Jesus also sent out. But more than a disciple, he was a fellow, go back, a fellow laborer with Paul. You know, there's people who hang around just because it's fun. And then there are those who actually get alongside and they help. There aren't many people like that, would you agree? When mama's cleaning out, cleaning and doing the wear every evening after the meal and nobody shows up by her side to help her, that's how Paul felt a lot. And it's not right. Fellow laborer is what every Christian should be, not just a, I'm a fellow citizen in heaven, I'm a fellow saint, but I yearn for the day where a body of believers decide we're gonna labor together. He's a faithful friend of Paul. Paul calls him, a beloved friend. Luke joins 
in, in, uh, with, with Paul in Acts chapter 16. And he stays with Paul. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he stays with Paul longer than anyone else. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Paul's writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 9. Paul's urging Timothy, and he says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Get here now, is what he's saying. For Demas hath, what a harsh word. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia, Dalmatia, only who is with me. And yet Luke is still with me. I like that. Take Mark. That's John Mark, the, the gospel writer. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he's profitable also to me for the ministry. But Luke was a faithful friend. He's also called the beloved physician. Go to Colossians, back to the left, find Colossians. Find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14. <clears throat> This was written before Demas left Paul. <laughs> but Colossians 4.14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. But what was Luke? He was a real doctor. He was a doctor that studied evidence and facts and proofs. He didn't just have people queuing up for, you know, for whatever the government says do. He actually studied and, and, and worked on evidence. They were maybe not as advanced as our science and, and phys physician work today, but I guarantee you he was a very careful man. He was careful about detail. You read the book of Luke and you read the book of Acts, and there are details there that only someone who cared about details would write. He's very precise. It's not like the gospel of Mark. Mark's like reading somebody who's riding on the back of a horse. You know, he's riding along and he's just writing, what happened, what happened, what happened, what happened. And that's fine. But you come to Luke and Luke gives you such detail and such expression of, and this happened, and this happened. Everything we know about Luke indicates that he was well-educated, observant, and careful. And he wanted to make sure people read about the life of Jesus and experienced the effect of his life on anyone who would just believe on him. So Luke and Acts are written by the same author. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, that's why it wasn't just him writing it. The Bible says all scripture was actually inspired by who? By the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. It's given by the inspiration of God. And I'll give you a, a surprising fact, okay? Just think about what Luke wrote and compared to what the apostle Paul wrote. If I asked you which one wrote more, which one would you say? Probably the Apostle Paul, because look at all of the epistles and the letters that Paul wrote. That's 14 out of 27 books in the New Testament. Surely he wrote more in content. No. As a matter of fact, Paul is third in line for the most material in your New Testament. Luke wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote one-third of the New Testament. Just the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostle is more than Paul wrote. As a matter of fact, there's somebody else who wrote more than Paul. You want to take a, you want to take a guess of who it was? John. 
John wrote the Gospel of John in three little letters, first, second, and third John, and Revelation. And when you add up all the words, he wrote more than Paul. So you've got Luke, and then you've got John, and then you have Paul. And yet we know that there's a lot of books that are attributed to Paul. Excellent. But these books evidently are supposed to impact our lives just as much as Paul's writings and John's writings. A third of the New Testament is written by Luke. Now, there are four parts to the gospel story, all right? And it starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where it all began. Acts is part two. It gives us the pattern for us to follow. You know, as I give you the illustration, sometimes most of us don't know what to do until somebody shows us. They can say, do this or do that. But then they show us, and Acts is God showing us through the lives of real people. Part three is us. It's us living it out. Why do you think God has gone and taken so long before he gets to the end of the story? We're part three. Guess what part four is? The book of Revelation. That's the final act when Jesus returns. So you got Luke, part one. Acts, part two. You and me, part three. Revelation, part four. We're in a process, folks. It's almost about ready to wrap up. He starts off back there in Acts, and he says, the former treaties. Let's go back there. And he writes to someone. The former treaties have I made. That, that, that other book that I wrote, O Theophilus. Now, I've never met anybody named Theophilus. Theophilus. I'm sure there are people named that because it's a good name. You might want to take a guess of what it means besides Patrick. <laughs> it means lover of God. Theo, God, philos, lover, as in friend of God. Someone who loves God. This is who Luke is writing to. Now, it could be the name of a person, but more probably than not, it is not written to one man named Theophilus. It's written to people who love God. Does that make sense? It's written, and I hope that describes you. Because I have found the reason why most people don't read their Bible is because they don't love God. That's a If you... If you ever fell in love with the God who loves you, you'd love his book. And that's one of the signs that you're saved. If you have no time for this book, then you're not saved. You want to know what God says. You want to know what he thinks and how he feels and what he says. So both the Gospel of Luke and this book of Acts was written for God's people. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John for the unsaved. Luke was written for the believer to encourage us on how to live the Christian life. I need to see how to do it. And Acts actually shows us how to do it in a hostile world. Guess what's coming, folks? Persecution. Guess what we have been so free from for so long? Trouble just because you're saved. We all have trouble. Health problems, financial problems, family problems. That's a given. But there are there is coming trouble that we're not prepared for. <clears throat> Acts will get us prepared. Acts just shows us how to live and, and, and enjoy being saved in a hostile world. 
Then he goes on in verse two and he says, unto the day, <clears throat> Paul, uh, sorry, Luke says, of all I, I wrote about all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. We call that the ascension. After that, he threw the who. That's the first mention. And, and, and believe me, he's mentioned a lot in the book of Acts. But it's the first mention of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Ghost. I want you to understand how important he is. He's the third person of the Trinity. We usually summarize as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, those three are one. They're the Trinity. Say, so can you explain that? No. Do you believe it? With all my heart. He's not three gods. He's one God. But he's three persons. And just as Jesus, just as the Father, just as the Holy Spirit are all God, that just blows me away. I just sit in awe of a, a being that is bigger than I can comprehend. He's been at work in this universe since the beginning. You read in Genesis chapter 1, it says the Spirit of God was right there moving upon the face of the earth when God created this universe. But what's more importantly is he's been at work in the book of Acts. Everything that happened in the book of Acts happened because the Holy Spirit was at, at, at work. That's why it's a good thing to say, God, I pray your Holy Spirit works in my family. I ask you to work in my life. I ask you to work in my city because without you, we can do nothing. <clears throat> but it is now, he is now at work in the lives of yielded believers. And I mean yielded. The Holy Spirit is present in every believer, but he's not at work unless you're yielded, unless you allow him. You ever seen a kid getting a haircut and he doesn't want to get his haircut? Huh? You ever seen a kid get a shower when he doesn't want to get a shower, get a bath? All right. How many of you are like that when the Holy Spirit begins to work on you and say, let's go do this? And you go, no. He works so marvelously in those who are yielded. The Holy Spirit is the most important power available in the world today. And he's the most important person that you should ever allow to run your life. Money, influence, popularity, politics, everything that we're concerned with now. None of it can match the power of the Holy Spirit. All he has to do is whisper and everything will change. You and I need to stop living in our own strengths and abilities. I'm glad you have an ability to play the piano. I'm glad you have the ability to sing. I'm glad you have the ability to make money or to, or to, to, to come up with new ideas on the job. I'm glad you have the ability to raise kids and, and, and have a family and whatever you do. But at some point, you've got to realize it all is nothing unless the Spirit of God is empowering and enabling you to do it right his way. Because invariably, we do things our way. Stop thinking you don't need to pray. That's what, you know, my, I, say, I shared it on New Year's Eve when we were here. My, the, the most important verse I learned this year was Acts 6-4, which says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the burden to pray is greater than ever in my life. You, you cannot. Yield unless you're in his presence. Luke begins this book with the fact that Jesus showed himself alive. Look in verse 3 now. To whom also he, Jesus, showed himself alive. Nobody said it. Oh, he's alive. No, Jesus proved it. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible truths. Proof, sorry. Being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus showed himself alive. 
So if you had been there when Jesus was crucified, would you imagine that he would never come up again? Would you think that's the end? That's what everybody thought. And when they wrapped him in those, the cloth and the burial cloth, and they put the spices in there and hurriedly put him in the tomb and sealed it, they walked away saying, he's dead and gone. Jesus then got up. And there are infallible, undeniable proofs that he is alive. Go to Acts chapter 2. I'll show you a couple of scriptures. I want to make a point with this. 224 says this. Look in verse 23. 223, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't an accident. God designed the whole thing. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye, talking to the Jewish people, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, it could just stop there, but it didn't stop. Peter kept going. He says, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden, held by it. Go to verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. We've seen him alive. Go to chapter 3 and verse 15. Acts 3 and verse 13, uh, 15. He says, look in verse 14. Ye denied the Holy One. You denied the Messiah and the Just One. And you desired a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted unto you. And you killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead. Whereof, again, they say, we are witnesses. Jump all the way down to verse chapter 25, still in Acts. 25, 19. Paul is in trouble because he's preaching the gospel. He's been brought before a council. Festus is hearing about the accusations against Paul, and here's the accusation, verse 19. Well, verse 18, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I suppose, but he was accused of certain questions against him of their own superstition, referring to Judaism, and of one called Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be what? Paul says, oh, he's very much alive. Chapter 26 and verse 8. Paul asks a question of a group of people standing there, and he says, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Why would you think it's impossible for God to raise the dead? One more book, Romans to the right, chapter 10. I'll show you how important it is to believe that Jesus is alive because the Bible says, Romans 10 and verse 9. <clears throat> Romans 10 and verse 9. And if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, who? The Lord Jesus. And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Guess what happens? Thou shalt be saved. See how important it is to believe that he's alive? So the first thing, going back to Acts chapter 1, that Luke reminds Theophilus of is, that Jesus is alive. If he's not, if Jesus is still dead, if Jesus was only a good teacher 
and not God in the flesh, then Christianity is a complete waste of time. If he's not alive, you're wasting your time right now listening to me. But if he is alive, if he has risen again, then we ought to be the most fanatical people to ever walk the face of the earth. Amen. If he is alive, acts should be going on right now, today. We ought to be risking our lives just as the first century Christians did so that people all over the world could be saved. No wonder the world is not being turned upside down now. Do we really believe he's alive? The second thing now, <clears throat> back still in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, to whom also he showed himself alive after his, I love this word, his passion. You ever ask somebody, what is your passion? What is it you love to do? Somebody says, oh, I love to, to paint. I love to write. I love to play the guitar. I love to go hiking or whatever. That may be their passion. What was Christ's passion? The cross. His whole reason why he came was not to be king, not yet. His whole reason why he came the first time was to be savior. And that meant going to the cross. And he describes the cross as his passion, as his best work of love. When a child makes a, a birthday card for grandma or grandpa and tries to cut out a heart. You know how hard it is when you're six years old to cut out a heart? <laughs> and it's all jagged and everything. And then they glue it on and the glue's all over the paper and tries to write I-L-O and then runs out of paper, V-E on the page. You know what I'm saying? And they give it to you. That, that gift is what they, they, it may all be all messed up, but it's their desire to give you something from their heart. That was the cross. And what Jesus, what the world looked at it and went, what a failure. It was passion of the love of Jesus Christ for us. I sat down and I just thought about that, that term, oh, the love of Jesus. Oh, and I wrote this, <clears throat> oh, the love of Jesus that brought him from above. Oh, the love of Jesus that so many have not heard of. It drove him to Golgotha, to a cross with all its pain. It made him shed his precious blood as our savior, he was slain. What can I say of such great love that hasn't been said before? I'll say the boundless love of Jesus makes me want to love him more. His passion was at such great cost. His death was my great gain. But now he lives and calls to all to trust his lovely name. Oh, the love of Jesus. Don't ever forget that. When Luke begins to write, he says his passion, his love for us. And then he gets right to the proofs. And, and he calls them infallible proofs. Again, I said it. People try to say that Jesus never existed. I'll come back to that. And say, that he was a fictitious person made up. He was just a normal Jewish rabbi or teacher that the disciples made into a heroic savior because they needed a martyr for their far right ideology. Whatever you want to believe, you can believe it's a free country, but history says otherwise. Even secular history has the following proofs about the person of Jesus Christ. And somebody says, how come it's not everywhere? I know why, because Israel was destroyed in 70 AD. I mean, absolutely burned crisp to the ground. Any type of 
evidence has to be found outside of Israel and has to be found in the lives of people. But I will talk about that in a second. But there are people. There's a guy named Cornelius Tactus. You might want to have children. I got a name for you. Tactus. (laughs) I should say uh, uh, Tacitus or Tacitus. He's considered, he's a Roman historian. He's considered one of the most accurate historians of the ancient world. And he mentions a group of superstitious Christians who were following Christus, which was the Latin word for Christ. And this Christus suffered under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. So Cornelius Tactus, not a friend of Christianity, records that Jesus had followers named Christians. Guy, Another guy named Suetonius. He was a chief secretary of an emperor named Hadrian. He wrote that there was a man named Christus who lived during the first century in Judea. Didn't write much about him. He says there's this troublemaker down in Judea. Flavius Josephus is one of the most famous Jewish historians. He was no friend of Christians either. He wrote in 93 AD about James, who was the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. He also wrote that at the time there was a rabbi named Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. Many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. This was a historian writing this. But those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So he writes, there's this guy, and he may be the Messiah. I don't know. There's another guy named Julius Africanus. He quotes another historian named Thallus, because Thallus's writings are all gone, but he quotes Thallus, who wrote of the darkness that blanketed the earth at the very time of Jesus' death during Passover. And he says, I don't know how. This is what he says. I don't know how, but because it was a full moon, but it must have been an eclipse. Now, if you know anything about science, the full moon doesn't create, it has to be a new moon to create an eclipse. But he's trying to come up with an explanation of why there was darkness over the face of the earth for those three hours on the cross, six hours on the cross. Pliny the Younger. He recorded early Christian worship practices. He wrote about, and he mocked them, but he wrote about the Christians would gather long before sunrise and they would sing and they would worship their deity named Christus. They were very moral people, and they had something called love feasts, and he mocked it, which meant that they just ate together and how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Then you have something called the Babylonian Talmud. It confirms that Jesus, they actually recorded this, this heretic named Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, was crucified on the eve of Passover, and it records all the accusations against Christ that he was a sorcerer and he encouraged apostasy. Now, those are just some, and you can look them up. You find people say, there's no evidence, and then you find it. No, there's tons of evidence. Don't believe. Listen, do your own research. But even before you can go that far, let me tell you, just look around. Because the Bible prophecies describing Christ's birthplace, his life, his miracles, the exact time and place of his death and resurrection. How about the empty tomb? The fact that they couldn't find the body. That's pretty hard to do in that day. I mean, there were four soldiers outside of that tomb guarding a dead man. (laughs) And somehow he got out. 
The 11 apostles saw Jesus alive. After his resurrection, they ate and they lived with him for 40 days. They actually handled him. First John, uh, Jesus says to Timothy, or sorry, to, uh, to um, Thomas, says, put your finger in my hands and put your hand in my side. I bear the scars. I'm the same guy. More than 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive during the 40 days that he was alive. He didn't just show up and then disappear. He was there. And then it gets better to transform lives. You see, you can be religious, but there's nothing like being changed. And the transformed lives of believers is the best evidence that Jesus is alive. One of the messages on New Year's Eve, Gavin preached on, on 1 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And that is evident because Jesus is alive. You know what those Christians were willing to do? They were willing to leave and be, be hunted out of their home. They were willing to be persecuted. They were willing to stand not just against the government, but willing to pay the price to stand against it. So much so they lost their homes, they lost their jobs, they lost their families, and yet they went from city to city and they kept preaching. They kept saying he's alive. Now, either they're the greatest delusion of all time or it's true. Infallible proofs. Do you know Christianity spread within the entire Roman Empire in just under 30 years? Without the internet, without money, they just had a passion to get people saved. The last point, he says there in verse three, keep going, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. So they knew he was alive. And he was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I don't know if you know it, but Jesus taught about two kingdoms. He taught about the kingdom of God and he talked about something else called the kingdom of heaven. But I guess I, I, I'll ask you, guess which one he talked most about? Get, I don't know what he talked most about the kingdom of God. It's important to understand the difference because the present, uh, let me just start with the future kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is heaven on earth. One day coming up soon. But the present kingdom, which is just as real, is heaven in us. I want, I would like heaven on earth. But before that time, I need heaven in me. You know, the disciples, as we're going to see next week, we're going to come to verse 4, 5, 6, 7. And the disciples are going to ask, is the kingdom coming? Or is, is it, are we, are we going to see you come back and the kingdom begin, the, the millennium to begin? And Jesus said, don't worry about that. I want you to worry about the kingdom of God. I want you to worry about an invisible kingdom. Most of Jesus' teachings, oh, I didn't know I had all that. Most of Jesus' teachings were about how we live now in the kingdom of God. Even though these disciples are going to be hated and hurt in the kingdom of men, they were going to have joy and peace and righteousness in the kingdom of God. Go to Romans. <clears throat> you can leave Acts now. We'll be finished. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. There is coming a kingdom when Jesus returns that will last a thousand years. Hitler wanted it. He called it the Third Reich, the Third Kingdom. Everybody wants to set up a kingdom that lasts forever. Well, there is coming one. His name is Jesus. And when it comes... 
He'll be king, king of kings. Happens right after the rapture and the tribulation and then begins that wonderful kingdom. But until then, what are we supposed to do? Look at Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not physical, but righteousness and peace and joy. There we are in the Holy Ghost. I don't care whether you're in prison for doing right or you're in trouble for doing right or you lose anything for doing right. Just by living for God, persecution's coming, folks. Let me tell you, but you can have, you know you're right and you can have joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Now, not what he said. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all the things that you need will be added unto you. But I got to ask you this. Are you even ready for the second coming? It is coming fast, but you're not ready if you're remaining outside of the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, I say it this way. If you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to enter first into the kingdom of God. It's a two door system there. You ever gone into a big building and there's a foyer area, you open the first door and then you go in, you can clear, you know, wipe your feet and shake your coat off from the rain. And then you go into the main building. The first thing you've got to get into is the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? Because listen to John chapter three to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, all Nicodemus thought was the coming of the Messiah and the beginning of the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. That's all he thought about. And Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of, and that blew Nicodemus. What do you mean the kingdom of God? I, I want the kingdom of heaven on earth. And that's not the important thing. If you want to get and enjoy the future kingdom, you got to get born again. The only way in through, in is through the door, which is Jesus himself. So what do you do now? I'm going to ask you to consider, have you received the king? Greatest gift you can ever give was not under a Christmas tree. It was on a cross. Receive the king. Believe on the living Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people think that they can just say a prayer and they'll be okay with God. That never works. Every culture prays. Every religion prays. Prayer doesn't save anybody. Jesus saves. And what you need is to cry out to him so that he comes into your life and saves you. I don't care if you get one more breath after that. You need to get saved. The man on the cross, standing, uh, crucified next to Jesus Christ, did not ask, get me down from here. He says, get me into your kingdom. And Jesus said, you're in. And then both of them died. Let me tell you, you don't need another breath. You need to be born again. Receive the king. Then become a Theophilus. Why don't you become, I know there are people <clears throat> who love sports. They love money. <clears throat> they love their friends, their popularity. They love their family. Be a lover of God. If I meet you, if I met, I mean, I, I really was blessed when uh, uh, Tony and Dina and Dina was, was, yes, yes, about their anniversary. 40, how many years? 42. Boy, it shows. That relationship shows. Wouldn't it be something if your people in your sphere of life looked and says, who have you met? Who are you in love with? Be a Theophilus. <clears throat> Read through Acts yourself. Don't wait for me. Prepare yourself for what we're going to learn this year. Four chapters a day, you finish in a week. 28 chapters divided by seven is four chapters a day and you're done in seven days. Or you can just sit down and read it straight through, take you three and a half hours. But no matter how little or how much, start reading it. 
and then take notes. There's no better way to learn this book than by taking down some notes and starting to connect the dots. Watch for things that are missing in your life. You can look at me and say, Pastor, you're not doing this right. Uh, So-and-so, you're not. Stop looking at everybody else. Look at yourself and say, I'm not living like this. That's what we need to do. Read through Acts yourself and start following the pattern. As you read the book of Acts, it has motivated me. Allow this book to get you to walk more closely with God, more dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit of God so that our world can hear. Why have we lost the desire to get the gospel out? Because we have let RTE, we have let Netflix, we have let everything in life quench us from our real purpose. And that is tell people he's alive and that he saves. Be encouraged. As we go through the book of Acts, it is going to be the most exciting. There are things in there that will thrill, some of it will scare, but it's absolutely the most blessed book to study. Be encouraged. I really believe that as the world was turned upside down then, it can be turned again upside down today. And start living like Jesus really is alive. That means when you go home and dinner is burnt, say, praise God. It doesn't matter. Let's go get a chicken from Super Value or Tesco. If, if, if things are falling apart, compared with the fact that your Savior came to this world, was died, and rose again, he has it all covered. It doesn't matter. I'll trust him. I'll just get through. Learn to live like he's really alive and show it. Let's bow in prayer. Father, Sometimes the easiest thing to do is to begin. But it also is the hardest thing to do. Because we are a people that have become stagnant and content with how we are and who we are and what we believe and what we're willing to do. And that's not Christianity. When Luke wrote Acts And he wrote it to Theophilus, to the lover of God. He wrote to get him moving, to get him in motion, to get him active. And he started with Jesus and all that he did and how it was passed on to us. We don't have to save anybody. We just have to say there is a Savior. We don't have to sacrifice our lives. We just need to be willing to. So that some sinner, some soul, some lost person would hear that there's hope. That there's somebody who loves them unconditionally and wants them and died for them. Why is that so hard for us? It's because we haven't started. Really, once we get in motion, it's a whole lot easier to finish. Lord, I pray that we would take this seriously and take, you know, I'm supposed to be doing something. Show me, show me, Lord, what to do, and I'll do it. Show me who to talk to, and I'll do it. I'll take tracks with me. I'll not be afraid. I'll not be ashamed. You are not ashamed of me. Therefore, I cannot and never will be ashamed of you. Help us, Lord, to be a kind of Christianity that is in motion. And if there's anybody in this room, God, I ask it every week. Sometimes people get tired of the same question over and over, but I ask it again. Lord, if there's anybody who's not saved today, 
Today is the day they need to get saved. They have no guarantee of tomorrow. There is nothing worth holding on to in this life. There is no philosophy, no scientific evidence. There is no theory that outshines that God manifests himself as a man lived in this world and put up with us and allowed religious and, polit religious and political people to crucify him. And then got up again and said, will you follow me now? Trust me. Look unto me. I'll save you. Because our sin is killing us. The thing we've gotten so used to is, is, is killing our homes and it's nearly destroyed our society. We're not waiting for everybody to get saved. We're just waiting for one to get saved. Would you save somebody today? They need to want it. I pray somebody does today. And if there's any Christian in this room who says, Lord, I've been backslidden. I've been stagnant for too long and I stink. Help me get into the book of Acts. And restore that joy and restore that love that I used to have. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.